Wiesa, editor-in-chief of the Jewish Journal. Please visit us at jewishjournal.com. And welcome to my podcast. Our sponsor this week is Yeshiva University's Wurzweiler School of Social Work. And you can learn more about their Master of Social Work program at wurz.yu.ed. Have you ever thought about serving others as a career? Now is your chance to make a difference in your community. Yeshiva University now offers an online Master of Social Work degree program. In this innovative, interactive program, you can conduct your fieldwork requirement in the community in which you live and want to serve without having to step foot on campus. You can also practice course competencies in the online program's unique virtual environment called the Heights. And your fellow students from all over the country and some even from overseas will help you learn throughout the duration of the program as their diverse perspectives and experiences shape your skills to be the best social worker you can be. Learn more today at wurz.yu.ed. The bottom line on this program is that it seems to blend fulfilling work with entrepreneurialism. And I think it sounds, it sounds terrific. This is David Suisa. Welcome to my podcast. Today we have Tal Kainen. Am I pronouncing it correct? Kainan. Kainan. Okay. Beautiful. Like Kainan. Author of God is in the Crowd, a book that has really made waves in the Jewish world and beyond that we reviewed in the Jewish Journal in September. And God willing, we'll talk about it today. Welcome, Tal. Thank you. Thank you. Straight from New York, right? Yes, sir. So you were in the Israeli Air Force for eight years. Then you got a Harvard MBA, and then you opened up an asset management fund. And then out of the blue, there's this book that comes out that you would expect a scholar to write on, on Jewish identity and all the challenges that, that we face. How did you come to think of writing this book? All right, well, I, yeah, for, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm not qualified to have written this book. That's something that, that's been kind of pain, painfully clear to me throughout the process, uh, but I couldn't not do it. And it's a book I'd been uh, hoping to read, I think, and, and I couldn't find it. Um, so I, I backed into my Judaism in, in what I consider the wrong way uh, today, but, but I, I do think it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's a good way to get uh, some visibility on the problem. So I, I grew up you know, very typically American Jewish in that I, I didn't really have a connection with my Judaism. I didn't know anything about Judaism. Um, you know, my, my family more or less breaks out on the, you know, tr- typical American intermarriage statistics. I have three older brothers who, who all married uh, out of, uh, of Judaism and are raising non-Jewish uh, children. So we're kind of typical in that sense. And uh, I was in boarding school in New Hampshire where when I came across the picture of the boy in the Warsaw Ghetto who has his hands up, mm-hmm. it's kind of a very iconic picture from, uh, from the war. And it was that picture that got me into Judaism. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll repeat a few times. It, I think it's the wrong way to get in. It's not, if, if we're going to create a sustainable Judaism, this is not the entry point. But it was for me. Uh, in that when you look at that picture, it almost begs a juxtaposition between the innocence of the boy, and you know he must be six or seven years old, and sort of angelic face in the middle of the picture, and the barbarism of the Nazis, who are on the right side of the picture, their, their guns pointed uh, towards him. And I couldn't connect with that. And I realized I should be connected with it, but I couldn't. I couldn't muster anger or hatred for the Nazis. They just looked irrelevant. That, 
you know, that generation's manifestation of an age-old phenomenon. This is not, this is not new. Um, but if you look at the boy's family, who's on the left side of the picture, his family and his neighbors, that they're just being evacuated from the building. This is the liquidation of the ghetto in, in 1943. I was furious at, furious at them uh, in that they had been complacent enough to abrogate their primary responsibility, which is the defense of this, of this child, right? They had no contingency plan. Uh, and here they were about to be shipped, shipped off to the gas chambers. As far as I know, they were all dead uh, with, within weeks. Uh, I was angry at that, and it didn't take me long to realize I'm, I'm probably as close in age to the parents as I am to the child. What's my contingency plan? I've, I've never conceived of myself as anything but American, just as they probably conceived themselves primarily as Polish, uh, you know, before before this happened. Um, and they didn't have the luxury of getting into things like spiritual identity. At their no. point. It was physical safety, and I can, physical safety. I can share a little story with you. And I, uh, I was rushing one day to take my daughter to summer camp, and I was really stressed out that I might miss the flight. And then we ended up at LAX airport, and I was so stressed out, and I was holding her hand, and I saw a security guard as I was in line with her. And for some crazy reason, that image you mentioned of the Polish boy, it's kind of a dark black and white image of me in a black and white image in 1942, somewhere during the Holocaust, holding my same daughter's hand, yeah. right? And looking at a security guard. But, but in 1942, that security guard is not on my side. Right. He wants to kill my daughter, right? Okay. So I'm now looking at the security guard at LAX and I'm saying, oh my God, I live in a country where if somebody tried to hurt me or my daughter now, that guy's on my side. Right. And, and it's, so, um, it's so difficult for Jews to understand how America is an exception to the great Jewish story. You know, we felt insecure for 19 centuries, but it's really not the same thing here. And in many ways, they've loved us to death. And that's why what you said is so true, that the Holocaust narrative doesn't resonate with us here because we just don't feel it. I mean, as much as we need to remember it, we don't feel that same kind of danger if it... it, it if anything, it's gone in the other direction. They've loved us to death. Yes. So in, in many ways, that you're, you're touching on what I think is, is, is actually the right access point, and which is let, let's start with the realization that for the first time in 1900 years, we don't have anti-Semitism to define us, mm -hmm. right? Which I think is a good thing, of course, right? We, we don't, you know, and, and, and I, I do get a lot of feedback to the opposite effect, but I, I, I'm happy that we live, uh, you know, 90% of us are in America and Israel. That's where the Jews are today. Mm -hmm. Two jurisdictions that I think are more or less devoid of anti-Semitism. I've never experienced anti-Semitism in my life. You know, I, I grew up here. I grew up in pretty non-Jewish environments and never experienced it. Always felt part of the franchise here. The deal in the United States is different from what it ever was in Europe or the Middle East or North Africa. It is a different deal. We are truly American. And in Israel, also, you know, we're, we're no anti-Semitism which means that Judaism for the first time in 1900 years has become a choice, right? Our ancestors really couldn't, didn't have to deal with the question that I, the, the, the first section of the book is called, should there be Jews? We didn't have to ask that question. We have to ask it today. And this is, I think, the, the kind of the big uh, insight that, that, that drove me to write this book, is if we don't choose to be Jewish, there will be no Jews. And, and right now, we don't know exactly is that we would be, what, what is it that we would be choosing? You know. Right, right. There's two, two things that struck me with the book. One is this uh, concept that can get a little esoteric, 
you know, Vox Populi, like the wisdom of the crowds. Yeah. And that's how it ended up in your title. Right. Um, how would you define that? Because that's inherent in your thinking for the future of Judaism is to tap into the wisdom of the crowds in, in the way that we, and you say that we've done that for centuries and millennia. Yeah. In our own sort of bumbling, organic, visceral way, we've tapped into the wisdom of the crowds. The Talmud story is part of the wisdom of the crowds. Uh, but since America is so different now, do you really think the wisdom of the crowd could still work? Yeah, so... Uh, just, and, and what is it? Yeah, of course. So, so to start, I think the, the simplest way to describe it, uh, and if you read the Vox Populi article from Nature, it does a, a much better job. But in general, if you've been to a county fair and you've seen the, the contest where you've, you know, people have to guess how many gumballs there are in a jar or jelly beans, um, the interesting thing there is not who's the best at guessing the number of jelly beans. And there are people who are better than others. There are experts or, or people who are very good at that, at that exercise. The interesting thing is that if you take a simple average of everybody's guess, assuming you have enough people participating, the simple average will tend to be closer to the real number of jelly beans than the best guess of everyone, which is a, you know, a crazy notion. There is some sentience, there's some intelligence in the crowd that doesn't exist in any individual member uh, of the crowd. And that science has been used, applied to all sorts of uh, uh, primarily predictive and increasingly now governance uh, um, uh, missions. What I argue is that crowd wisdom is really the force that kept the Jews coherent for 1,800 years. Mm -hmm. You think about it, you know, after the Roman expulsion, were spread across hundreds of geographic nodes across the world, not coordinated with each other. If you're in Casablanca and I'm in Hesse... We, How we did you know I was in Casablanca? I know you're in Casablanca. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> then, you know, we don't know each other. We probably don't even know about each other. We're certainly not coordinated. And here we are with this very complex orthodoxy that's constantly evolving. What are the odds? You know, no pope, nobody coordinating this whole thing. What are the odds that after 1,800 years there's still a coherent identity called Jew? It's, to me, it's, it's, it's astounding that that... Uh, so my, my, my thesis in the work is essentially what we're, talking, what we're looking at here is, is, is a derivative of the wisdom of crowds as a governance mechanism for Judaism in that, you know, we, we kind of tick the boxes of the prerequisites for crowd wisdom, right? Not, not every crowd is wise. If, mm -hmm. In order for a crowd to be wise, it has to <clears throat> meet certain criteria. We need to be asking the same questions, and I credit the sort of the re redaction and codification of Mishnah and then Talmud as sort of the set of questions that we're all looking at, whether in Casablanca or in uh, Kassel, we're looking at the same set of questions. Right. Our diversity is actually a, a plus. It's actually, it's, it's critical. It's, it's great that you, you know, you and I speak different languages. You might speak Ladino, I might speak Yiddish, you might speak Arabic, I might speak German. We probably both uh, know how to read in Hebrew, which is, which is a plus, but we're diverse. Our interactions are different. We're independent of each other. I don't get to see your vote, you don't get to see my vote. That's critical. That's, that's important for, for, for crowdism. And we have some aggregation mechanism in that, you know, when we get expelled, from uh, Cordoba and Sevilla, and we end up together in Istanbul or in Amsterdam or in uh, Recife with divergent traditions, right? Because we did evolve differently from, from uh, geography to geography. We had to reconcile that, uh, th that divergence and come up with kind of a, a, um, a, 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 call it a, a reconciliation of our traditions. And that happens over and over again. It's, I, I would argue, a constant process in Judaism. It was critical. The, the physical architecture of diaspora was critical to that, right? That's how you got the independence. We were in the ghetto in Casablanca, and we were in a foreign country. We were guests. We were in a Muslim country. 
So we, we had the, the, the hugging Judaism, where we huddle. Judaism was not a choice. You know, and that's the thing is during these 1900 years, there's a more sense of boundaries for whatever reason, maybe because of the anti-Semitism or what have you, because we felt as guests. But in America, I think the challenge is that you don't have this sense of boundaries. So it's a, almost a free for all. Uh, and I'm wondering if the wisdom of the crowd can be as effective when you have a free for all and the crowd itself is not in a county fair talking to each other and they're each in the different silos and one of them is completely obsessed with fighting for the rights of, you know, Hispanic janitors and minimum wage and that's all they see their Jewish identity as is social justice and the other one is in a cheder all day long studying yeah. Talmud and everything in the middle and I'm wondering if wisdom of the crowd can happen when we're not really talking to each other right. and when we really don't have boundaries. Right. So I agree that we have to be engaged in the same exercise. It's, it's good that we come at it from different approaches. I want the guy from the cheder and I want the social justice warrior all in the same conversation. It's, it's critical that we have that. Um, I agree with you that kind of the range of definitions, which that is our challenge. What is Judaism? We have to define it. That is the challenge. We never had to define it before. Now we do. Because if we're going to opt into it, we need to know what we're opting into. The range of answers that could work, and it's not one answer. It's, it's a range. But they're going to have to be a, a, a little bit removed from either of, either of the poles that you just described. Yes. right? And look, we've always been reconciling this tension. Judaism is about reconciliation of tensions, right? Mm -hmm. we, it's always where we, we, we always have two imperatives in mind at least, and mm -hmm. we're trying to steer you know, towards some optimum between them. This, what, what you're defining is, is the particularist and the universalist. Right. right? And we are both, and I, 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 we've always been both. We've always, we've had a kind of a semi-permeable uh, barrier between us and the rest of the world. That's a good thing. I think it, it's wonderful. But, but, but we do need to find a reconciliation. Right. It's not but, at either point. But when you say, Tal, that your prognosis, uh, and I quote directly from your book, my prognosis for the Jewish future is grim. I kind of like that. Yeah. I'll tell you why. Because <laughs> you're not trying to sugarcoat it. Right. And right. you're just giving me the, the tachlis, right. like they said. So just... Elaborate on that. On why do you think it's grim, and how we can move up from that? Sure. Well, let, let's be clear. I, I think we're facing a fork in the road, and in one direction lies crisis, and the other opportunity, huge opportunity. And, and I, I've been thinking of it lately. I don't write about it like this in the book, but you know, there are two historic precedents, or two precedents in our Jewish story, uh, for the moment that we're facing today. Two periods where Judaism fundamentally reinvented itself. And we've always been evolving, but there are two fundamental reinventions. The first is the Exodus, where we leave Egypt not really a people. It's kind of unclear, it's ill-defined. What are we exactly? And 40 years later, we are sovereigns in our own land, governed by a book of law that will stay with us forever, right? It is a fundamental reinvention of how we're structured, how we're governed. And the second is the Roman expulsion, not the Babylonian expulsion, but the Roman expulsion, uh, where we go from being a sovereign in our land to this diaspora model. Uh oh, right? what do Which we do now? Right. We lost the temple. Yes. So in both of these situations, you know, I, I think we had a, a a fork in the road where we could have dissolved. It could have been the end of Judaism. To be clear, there were a lot of people running around the desert, uh, you know, at the time of the Exodus. None of them are here anymore. We are. There were a lot of people, a lot of provinces of the Roman Empire 
uh, that are gone. There are no more Phoenicians, right? That, that, that those don't exist. There are no more Moabites. There are no more Nabataeans. They're gone, and we're here. Uh, I think we're on the eve of a third fundamental reinvention of Judaism. That's what this is about. Now, we need to get our attention, and which is why I say let, let's, let's, let's be clear. One fork of this road ends in our dissolution. There will be no more Jews in, in, in two or three generations. That, 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 that's where we're looking. The other is a really exciting rebirth, right, where we, can, we have the opportunity now to define ourselves, to not be defined by European anti-Semitism, for example, which to me was seemed uh, you know, t today that that's why I say my, 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 my starting point was the wrong starting point. You know, it's, I hear you speak. I'm thinking of quantum physics because <laughs> whenever I'm trying to understand that like, this is the next frontier is quantum physics, right. it's like all over the map and it understands ambiguity and so forth because if you look at the first 2,000 years was biblical Judaism and the next 2,000 years was rabbinic Judaism and now we're approaching the next 2,000 and, you know, what's the big idea. Biblical and rabbinic are big ideas that we understand. There's, the, there's something concrete about them. It's like regular physics. But now it looks like we're entering this really a different type of definition that's not as neat as either biblical Judaism or rabbinic Judaism is what I'm sensing. Well, look, I would you. argue that it was never neat. It was never correct, neat in correct. retrospect. But broadly speaking, you can say that the you know this was the Bible era and this was the rabbinic right. era because of the, the Talmud and so forth. But I think we're especially because of America and Israel. If if you see that we haven't had America and Israel for two thousand years, these right. are really two kind of new environments. Like sure. my Judaism is so different than the Judaism I grew up with in Morocco. The Judaism I teach to my kids. If anything, I do try to bring them back to the Judaism of my youth, but it's a completely different challenge where 98% of everybody they meet, they can't marry, right. you know, and which is obviously completely different in Israel, and it was completely different in Morocco because we lived only in the ghetto, and 100% of the people you meet are Jewish, right. right? So there were so many fundamental differences. That's why I am excited about the fork in the road, about taking the right one. I am. And I have no idea what it's going to look like. I've heard words like eclectic Judaism. I, I, oftentimes I use the expression like we have a, this great buffet right. in Judaism, and you have many entry points. And for you, it's this, it's poetry, music, history, philosophy. And I often say, what's your entry point? Like, right. come on in. And then the, the thing in your book that you touch on, which was very poignant for me, is the sense of belonging, You know, which, which is... Uh, it transcends everything else. Because if I feel I belong, this is where I belong to, my family, even if I have a rough year where Judaism provides me no meaning and it's not that good, I'm still belonging. I'm not going to reject my family because I've had a bad experience with my family. Do you, do you see what yes. I'm saying? So there's so many um, emotions and ideas that are in this fork on the road, sure. you know, which makes it complicated and exciting. Yeah, and look, I think there's a lot of rich and beautiful legacy that we should take. I'm not, I'm not uh, arguing for a break with our past, right? It's, it's a fork. It's exactly that. In fact, where we've come from is going to be critical. Right? We, mm. we need, I, I, one of the things that excites me about being Jewish, which I didn't grow up with, and I didn't know anything about this, but we're part of a chain that more than 2,000 years ago was asking questions like, you meet a, uh, a bride at a wedding, and in, when you're introduced to her, 
you're asked, isn't she beautiful? Uh, and you don't think she's beautiful. And how should you answer that question? And you have Shammai saying, look, truth is the ultimate uh, guide. You have to say what you really think. And you have Hillel on the other side saying, no, humanity is actually an important guide as well. This is her day. Uh, it's important that she feel beautiful. How do we navigate that tension? The fact that we're, we're taking these ethical questions forward, documenting not only our consensus opinions, but our dissenting opinions as well over such a long stretch of history. If you think we shouldn't take it for granted that concepts like justice in 2019 are what they are, right? Justice is not a natural phenomenon. It's a human invention. And it could have been invented in many different ways. It has been invented in many different ways, right? Our concept of justice, when I say our, humanity's concept of justice or concepts of justice 500 years ago are very, very different from what they are today. And they'll be different 100 years from now. The fact that we have a code, a documented code, that tracks the evolution of the wisdom of a specific crowd, it's the Jewish crowd, right? Mm -hmm. This is not a succession of papal edicts, which is also valuable in a different way, but, but, mm -hmm. but, but, but this is its own code, is critical. I'm excited about being a link in that chain. I'd like it right. to continue. Right, right, and I think that's what's powerful. You think our past is so powerful and the lessons are so powerful that they can, we can be nourished from them, even though our situations are radically different. Sure. What, what I do find uh, often disappointing is when people use the past only to prove an agenda. So right. if their agenda is for uh, social justice, they will just use the past to find evidence that just proves their point so they can accomplish as opposed to having an open mind sure and to be open to having your <laughs> you know your mind changed on an issue i think the hillel shammai is a classic example uh of teaching us how to have civil discourse you know we, right. we use that often you know uh our, our friend in common yossi klein alivi mm -hmm. he says the jews we have this complex of revelation he said we were so moved by this moment of revelation at Sinai that whenever we speak, we have this aura of revelation. <laughs> Let me tell you, we, we all like Moses coming down from the mountaintop right. with big revelation, and we feel we own the truth, and so many of us are digging in, and I see it now in the Jewish community where politics has dominated the conversation to a point that it's just keeping us apart. Right. And how do, you, how do you deal with that as part of the fork on the road? This is... This is a relatively new phenomenon. Well, look, I think this, this legacy of navigating ethical tensions teaches humility. You know, I, th I think one, one of the issues that I see today in the, the sort of outrage culture that, 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 that we seem to be in at the moment mm. is there's an underlying assumption of, of moral perfection, yeah. right? Because if you can judge everything, you know, we're tearing these statues down because they don't, they, you know, these, or we're going to ban these authors because they don't comply with our... You know, our, our, current, our, our current sensibilities, that kind of assumes that January 2019 sensibilities are perfection. It's I own never the truth. Change, right? I own the truth. Yeah, of course, 50 years from now, people are going to be looking back at us and saying, you know, they were terrible. They did mm -hmm. all sorts of uh, bad things, and, you know, to some extent, we might, we, we might come to agree with them. Uh, it's great to come to these things with, with, with a certain humility. And, and the fact that our Again, l look at rabbinic rulings on, on different eth ethical questions and their evolution over time. Their navigation of, of, of advances in, 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 in politics, in technology. You know, we had to negotiate the steam engine. 
We had to negotiate electricity. How do, how do we deal with these things Jewishly? Tomorrow we're going to have to navigate space travel. What, what does that mean halachically? What, 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 what are the, that to me is, is a valuable process, not just for the Jews, for humanity, is that it's a reference point. It's a, ref, it's a, it's a moral reference point. We shouldn't lose it. And, and it's not just that, the Jews that have a stake in that. Right. And, and behind that, the fundamental idea is the right attitude. And all these things that you're referring from the past, that at some point there was a sense of the right attitude. And if you come to this with humility, empathy, curiosity, these are attitudinal human traits that can change the world. Yeah. And, and in the Jewish world... It's like, you know, where is it written? How do we instill? I'm, I'm curious to ask you, because you live in New York now, if you've seen any examples since you've written a book or maybe before you wrote the book of taking the right side of the fork. Have you, are you seeing anything in yeah. the Jewish world that encourages you? Yeah, uh, a, a lot of things. I mean, I'm, I'm actually, it's a, it's a very exciting time, I think, in, in many ways. Yes, it's fraught, there's risk, but... but, but uh, here's an insight I didn't have when I wrote the book. Is uh, you know, I've been on this book tour for a couple of months now, and, and, and I speak to people afterwards. And a few grandmothers spoke to me and gave me more or less this story. Is I have all Jewish grandchildren, uh, and none, none of these women were Orthodox. So they've really bucked the trend, right? They've, mm. they've, they've completely, <laughs> that, that's not the statistics of the United States. Um, my husband converted to Judaism, and I think that had I married a born Jewish man, this would not have been the result. Mm. This is a really interesting insight. And what are they essentially saying, and I hope I'm not over-editing this, but what they're essentially saying is, when we decided we're going to be Jewish and we're gonna raise our our children Jewishly, we actually had to figure out what that means. We had to invest a lot of thought and and gain a certain amount of knowledge and make a commitment together uh, to doing this something that we don't have to do uh, when, when, we, when, when we marry another Jew. And it's got me thinking about um, a parallel that I use in the book, and I think I get it right on the quantitative side, but I miss a qualitative point in the book. Whereas, you know, I, 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 I say Americanism borrows a lot from Judaism. There are a, lo- a lot of the way we, we structure ourselves in terms of gov- governance in the United States is really a nod to Talmudic um, uh, 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 governance. Here's an idea about borrowing something back, and I talk about conversion and the notion that if you're born American, if you're born to an American parent or born in the United States, you're an American. You're not required to know anything about America. You're not required to commit to anything uh, 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 American. I think it's a problem. It's It's a separate problem. But if you're not born American and you wish to become American, you need to make a commitment, right? First of all, you need to live among us for a certain amount of time before you're even eligible. You need to study for and pass a knowledge exam. The studying is a commitment. The passing mm-hmm. it means you, you, you've met a certain bar of knowledge of what makes this country what it is. And you need to take an oath, which is a condition, an oath of allegiance as a condition mm-hmm. of, of your citizenship. Nice. So is it a stretch to say that by virtue of having to clear these two bars of knowledge and commitment, that the average immigrant American, on average, the immigrant American is a better American than the born American? I don't think it's a stretch at all. And when I look at Judaism, where we are in a crisis of knowledge, right? Most Jews grow up like me with zero knowledge of, uh, of Judaism and make zero commitment to Judaism. And we have a group of people who want to join us and are willing to work hard to, to, to clear these, the, the, these twin hurdles. Should we be rethinking conversion? You know, this is certainly not the whole solution, but I look at it as, as, as part of it. I, again, I, I hit on Jews the Jews need to convert, Tal. Okay. Jews need right. to convert. When I hear you speak, 
I have a lot of friends that I would love to bring to a conversion ceremony. People Who are, are Jewish. 100% Jewish. <laughs> right. Right. Say, come on, Steve, come. Yeah. We're going to do it because you're, you're, you've been to my Shabbat table a hundred times. You're starting to like it. You know what? I think we should, you know, as opposed to just the, or maybe when they do the bar mitzvah they never had. Right. I think it's a terrific idea, sort of a, a commitment ceremony. You see it with uh, the fraternities. Sure. You know, I did that once with A-Bi. Right. There's a whole ceremony. So, David, I would say, look, if, if there's a line that you cross over, a, a Jewish line, and that requires a definition. Mm-hmm. This is this is back to the, the heart of the book, a definition of what Jewish is. It serves us in a number of ways. It, it is important to, to have a process of getting over that line. And I would say, in either direction, right? Converting in is great, is is, but also converting out. It it, it should be clear. If you ask my older brothers, you know, had had their wives said, "I'm willing to convert to Judaism," but tell me what it is, mm-hmm. they probably would not have had an answer. I mean, what exactly? So I don't think they had a concept of what they were leaving. I certainly didn't. And we're partly responsible for <clears throat> that. The, the Jewish establishment, you know, uh, anti-Semitism is the junk food of Jewish identity. Mm. It's super easy. Yep. It's like Doritos. You know, you can boost your fundraising by yep. alarmism. And I think the whole uh, using Ju- the Holocaust for Jewish identity has been one of the biggest mistakes we made. I agree. You know, but it's it's a trap. It's Yetzirah. It's easy. Sure. To, uh, but it's instant. It doesn't. It just goes. It just comes and goes. It doesn't last. It's not based on positivity. And I think we've invested. I mean, literally hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars trying to convey Jewish identity based on the Holocaust or based on alarmism or based on anti-Semitism. That it certainly doesn't exist like it did it in the past. And I think we're paying the price for it today, because like your brothers, you know, they don't have a positive view of, of Jewish identity, and now we're trying to pick up the pieces. It's, it's kind of interesting that your movement that you're discussing, this fork on the road, is happening at a moment in time when we're running out of Holocaust survivors. Sure. And I wonder, Tal, if we're going to be able to make that transition to a more positive view of Jewish identity. And even now, I don't feel that hopeful when I see the reaction, it's it's almost like we're looking for an anti-Semitic act. So, there's, and there's a bias even in media. Right. I know that I'll get more clicks if I if I'm more alarmism. So there are obstacles in 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 the right choice of the fork on the road. Right. So you you, you probably wouldn't be surprised at how many reactions to the book are basically come down to well, all we need is a is a little wave of anti-Semitism and everything's going to be fine. Which is sad. It's a sad spread. commentary on on how we've come Agreed. in America. Yeah, and, and then there's two points I want to touch on. I mean, you you talk about meaning, that Judaism has to be a source of meaning, and I've, I've written about that a lot. I do believe in it. Uh, but a rabbi made an interesting pushback recently. <laughs> he said, David, if you focus too much on meaning, then what if they walk into a Barnes & Nobles and they find you know this fantastic self-help book right. that gives them a whole other path to meaning? You went on that. Uh, it was an interesting pushback I hadn't heard before. Yeah. So look, I would take that as a challenge. I, I would start by saying I, I don't think there's any virtue in targeting 100% um, of Jews choosing Judaism. It's never been the case before. Uh, you know, if you just look at the, with the advent of 23andMe and all these DNA tests, mm-hmm. you know, h- how, many, how many Jews there are in the world, right? It's, it, you, clearly, there's been apostasy throughout uh, the, 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 the period of diaspora, 
and there will continue to be, and that's fine. I think a nice target would be to try to get people who are choosing to leave Judaism to know what they're leaving, mm. to have a sense of what this is, mm -hmm. and if they still make the choice, then that's fine. I think mm -hmm. that's actually maybe even even appropriate, and to target some critical mass. And we can we can do the math. It's 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 quite simple. You know how many people we need to continue choosing Judaism. It's how not a hundred percent. 70%. Mm -hmm. You know, it depends on birth rates. In Israel, we have a higher birth rate than in the United States. It depends on the... But it, it, it's, it's, it's far from 100%, and that's okay. And the other piece is if we're taking people in, and, you know, let, let's, let's, let's not become too ethnically purist, right? Mm -hmm. We never have been before. The fact that Northern European, Northern European Jews tend to be fair-skinned and North African Jews tend to be dark-skinned is not Darwinism, right? Mm -hmm. We have always mixed. Let's, let's not get purist now. There's no, I, don't, I don't see any reason to do that. Um, but welcoming people in, I think, it is a big part of the solution. Again, it, like I said before, it's not just a quantitative part. It's a qualitative uh, aspect of the solution. Yeah, and, and there's a force <coughs> of gravity now that's mitigating against, for lack of a better word, tribalism or particularity. Because if you see the this this kind of wave of Chikun Olam Judaism that's happened in America over the past couple of decades, it mitigates against particularism because the more I'm repairing the world, the more I feel like a universalist, the more I care for all of humanity. And from that standpoint, feeling uh, part of the Jewish people almost looks like a step backwards. Right. Right. And, and, and that's so troublesome to me because, you know, I, I know that... Uh, Chaim Seidler Feller is a dear friend, and you used him, and I used him as well. I've known him forever. So we both have used him uh, for, for sources. He's an amazing uh, source and reference for so many levels of Judaism. Yep. And he always talks about the tension between particularism and universalism, and it's not either or. But for so many Jews today, in practice, it becomes either or. And their comfort zone is as a universalist Jew. And it's very difficult to make this idea of particularism or tribalism compelling sure. to a universalist Jew. And isn't that like a major obstacle? So I, I think it's, it's, it's not a new challenge. It's always been part of our, 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 our challenge. Today, again, without anti-Semitism, the ease with which we can dissolve into society at large, that, that is new. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe the magnitude of the challenge is new, but the challenge itself is not. We've always had to navigate this, uh, th th this, this tension. And I have to say, to, to me, that's actually part of the beauty of, of, of life. Is now, I mean, it would be very boring if, if all we had to do was, was kind of plug into. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, by the way, if we if we talk about that, this is this is a point about religion in general. It's not not just a Jewish point. <clears throat> it clearly does answer some deep psychosocial need that I see being replaced today with political affiliations. Yes, right? so, so true. Politics so has true. become tribal to the to the point that we. You know, we have people on the right today who will kind of almost excuse anything and, mm -hmm. and really go against their core ideals in order to be part of the right. And maybe even more so, I see that happening on, on the left today uh, in, right, in this country. Right, that just need to belong. You know, one of the arguments I use against <clears throat> my universalist friends on the left is I tell them, you know, you're an incredible Yankee fan, right? Yeah. <laughs> you're an incredible Laker fan, you know, and you have such loyalty to things as a sports team. And yet, uh, this sense of having a loyalty to a people that has lasted for thousands of years just does not, it's not an obvious choice uh, for many Jews. 
Sure. And, and by the way, you're making another point here, I think, which, which is that you can be both a Yankees fan and a Lakers fan, two different sports, two different cities, that you, you, can, still, you can still do that. M meaning, if, if you choose to opt in to Judaism, it's not the only thing in your life, and I don't think anybody's asking for it to be the that's only an, thing. Uh, that's a good point. You know, there's this <clears throat> obsession with inclusion today in America, and we're, we've always been influenced by the outside world, and inclusion is a type of religion right now. And if I express my Judaism too much, you know, I'm afraid I might offend my Korean friend or my non-Jewish friend, which is a silly notion. Sure. Because I've had non-Jews at my Shabbat table. They love that I'm staying Jewish. Yeah. And I'm expressing and I'm doing all the Jewish prayers. They love that. Right. And somehow we feel we might offend people if we look too particular. Right. And it's, uh, it's, it's a major. And I'll tell you why that, that, that concerns me the most. Because I have found that the strongest component of my Jewish identity is just a sense of belonging to a people and a story. It's just fundamental to who I am. As much as I engage with the whole world constantly, uh, it's still the core. Is it the same for you? Yeah, very much. I, I don't know how to communicate that feeling. Uh, I, I feel <laughs> it in my guts. I, I write it. I, I don't know how to communicate that on. I don't know if that's something we can use as a... It's to, tough. You either have it or you don't, sort of, right? Well, it's tough. I tell you what <laughs> I tell my kids. I might have said this before, but on you know Friday night, Shabbat, it's like I think the strongest thing I've ever said to them is a thousand years ago in a little village in Morocco or... Bobbies and Zadies were making the same kiddish. That's unbelievable right. to me. Yeah. It, it just it, nothing moves me more than that. Nothing. Right. The thought of a hundred grandmothers and a hundred grandfathers holding hands since the time of the destruction of the Second Temple, and they kept the tradition going, and I get to have the privilege of con continuing it. It's just beyond. It's transcended for me. It's goosebumps. Yes, it is and, a it is a privilege. You know, I, I agree. And I and I, I I've shared that to my kids to the point of annoyance. <laughs> They say, stop, Daddy. We know that. We know right. about that. Uh, but joking aside, it's it's really moved them, the sense that they're part of something so much bigger. And this thing that they're so much bigger is not a Jewish value. It's not some esoteric theoretical idea of justice and value. It's a people that uh, stuck together. I don't know if you know. Uh, I'm sure you know him. Avram uh, Greenbaum? I can't believe I'm blanking out on his name. Uh, he just wrote a book recently. He was in our table one Shabbat, and he just shocked every, all the guests, and he said Judaism is not a religion. Right. Abraham Infeld, I'm oh, sorry. Oh, right, of course. Yeah, yeah. Right. Judaism is not a religion. We're a people. Right. We're a nation. And, you know, p people were shaken up at an orthodox religious Shabbat table. He's an orthodox Jew, and he said Judaism is not a religion. We're a people. And it's um, in popular culture, you have the term MOT, member of the tribe. Mm -hmm. I think it's still prevalent in America in a very cultural way. Right. You see it in Hollywood, Jews who speak Yiddish and so forth. But you're saying this has the risk of dissipating. Well, yeah, so I, 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 th this goes back to, right, the, the central message of this book is we need a definition. What is this? And I agree with Avram on... on we don't fit very neatly in the religion box. It, certainly as we see it uh, kind of uh, uh, against the backdrop of the other monotheistic religions or the Abrahamic religions, in that in both Christianity and Islam, faith is a central, perhaps the central uh, tenet. In Judaism, faith is... is it's a, part a, of a, it. It's, it. But it's a, at best secondary, right? There's mm -hmm. not a mitzvah to believe. Correct. That's not, uh, uh, in fact, you know, 
I'm, I'm not sure that Rambam was a believer in, in the God of Scripture. It's not clear to me that that's... But uh, even religion itself, however one defines religion, is still just part of the Jewish buffet. Exactly. And that's offensive to, to people, to rabbis, who claim all of Jewish identity is part of the synagogue and religion and Torah and so forth. And right. this is what I find is different groups are claiming Judaism... Like, you know, let me tell you what Judaism is, and no one's really saying it's sort of all of the above. Well, so w when we say, I mean, the reason the book is called God is in the crowd, right? C crowd, we, we are talking about crowd wisdom, but why, why do I say God? Is a lot of, particularly young, young Jews that I speak to and ask about how, how important Judaism is in your life, uh, a lot of people say, you know, well, I don't believe in God, so it, it's not really a relevant question. So hold on a second. That's, that, that was never a threshold requirement mm. uh, for opting in. And the notion of God is in the crowd is as if, if you don't believe in the God of Scripture, here's a way that we can actually get on the same page mm. because there's huge value. In fact, I would say equal value in an invented God that's acknowledged as invented mm -hmm. as there is in a revealed God. And the two are not mutually exclusive. If you're a believer and I'm not a believer, we can still work together. And the analogy I've been, I've been using is if you and I started a business that manufactures circles, that, that's our product. And you know, a customer could come in and order a circle in any size. He just has to give us a radius and we'll make the circle uh, in his size. We need a point around which to draw that radius, right? We, we, we need a point. Now, I can say it doesn't matter where the point is. It's a totally arbitrary, it's an invention. It doesn't matter. You, you need it to draw, but you can define it anywhere. You can put it on the floor, you can put it on the ceiling, you can put it in space. We're going to get the same circle. But you say no. In order for that uh, circle to be kosher, the point needs to be in the middle of the eastern wall of, of our you know, factory. We can work together because... Let's, space let's, around the circle. Well, let's just put it on the eastern wall. Mm -hmm. Okay, if it doesn't matter to me and it does matter to you, let's put it where you think it should be. But that requires, and here's where love comes into this, that requires that you be able to accept that I think you're crazy for th thinking that the point has to be somewhere uh, in the wall, and I need to be able to accept that you think I am irresponsible, I haven't seen the light, so to speak, but we can still work together. If we understand that we need that point, and whether it's a real thing or, or, or an invented thing in the middle of it, we, we, we need it, and we can agree on where it can be placed. How do you we define that something. point, Tal, in, like in practical terms? Right, so to me, what I, what, I, what I propose in the book, in the last section of the book, is, is prescriptive. Right? Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to define Judaism myself. I, I give some examples of, of, of aspects of the definition, how they could look. Uh, but that's not the the purpose. The purpose is to de define a mechanism, right, for for the crowd, for the Jewish crowd to define itself. Um, you know, w w what exactly is it that we're that we're doing? So I think you know, Avram Infield talks about the the different stools, right? The five, oh, the five. I love table. that. Yeah, yeah. and and I, and I I think that's that yeah. that's actually very useful. One of the things that we do in the book is uh, we went out we went out and surveyed a bunch of people. We created a little. Uh, a very light crowd wisdom exercise. I mean, the, the technology that I propose would, would actually do this right, but we wanted to ju just explain that this is, this is kind of how it would look. And, and when asked, uh, asked over 200 people um, to define Judaism in terms of tenets, okay? You get up to 10 tenets, and it was a tough question because we said that y y you, y your, your list of tenets has to answer the following two conflicting criteria. On the one hand, as a list, 
they can only define the Jews. It has to be distinguishing, right? Uh, you can have an individual tenet like education, okay? The ch Chinese value education as well. That's okay if we, we, we can share uh, single tenets or two tenets with another group, but as a list, it has to dis distinguish us. But on the other hand, each tenet has to be acceptable to 75% of Jews in your opinion, mm -hmm. okay? But be honest, God can't be in there. We don't have 75% are on board with God. Kashrut can't be on there. These, this, so it's, it's a tough It's a tough, it's a tough one. So with the... the so very first results. Of all, very few people got to ten. I didn't get to ten myself. It's 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 tough, uh, but we had massive overlap in the top five, which, which to ones? me was actually very exciting. So education was, gotcha. was was on there, and I don't know. I, I forgot uh, Avram's five legs. I, so I don't know how closely this matches, but maybe maybe, maybe it's there. Uh, education, community, justice, ritual, and my favorite, which I didn't get, is dissent. Right? We are an arguing people. We don't take authority from above. You know, from Abraham arguing with God about how many survivors of Sodom, or how many, how many tzaddikim he would have to find in Sodom, uh, the, the notion that you're going to argue with the creator of morality, you're going to argue a moral point with him, that's a very Jewish uh, 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 notion. Th those five together, and you know, I, I put forward in the book the, the you know, people's textual, uh, or uh, examples of people's textual responses, because that, that's actually more interesting to see why why they say justice, why they say education, what does that mean specifically, Jewishly? Um, and again, borrowing from, from Infeld, I'm not sure you need to embrace all of it. it it's okay. I mean, a, a significant subset actually works uh, uh, very well. Well, you know, it's funny. I'm, I'm calling Dr. Google here, and I'm <laughs> looking at uh, Avram Infeld's. <laughs> oh, you have the five legs? Yeah. Yeah, I got him. Uh, I think I got him right here. I know that one of them is Israel. Uh -huh. uh, the other one, number three, if memory is to be important to this family, we have to remember that our earliest memory is not that the Jews left Egypt and suddenly appeared in Israel. They stopped somewhere. And leg number four, well, you know what? We'll uh, publish in the Jewish Journal so <laughs> readers okay, can see it because I can't read through the whole transcript. But I'm fascinated by education. Uh, dissent and community and ritual. And why would non-religious Jews put ritual in there? Well, this is interesting. Right. So ritual is one that I didn't like when I first saw it. I thought of it and I, I didn't put it in my list, uh, and I would now in, in that – you know, I think one of one of my own criticisms of the book is is I, I think I dwell a little bit too much on the left brain kind of cerebral um, uh, uh, foundations of Judaism. But to your point, you know, I, I also get the goosebumps uh, when I when I know that I am mouthing words that my ancestors fifty generations ago. You know what I look at the goosebump style for me? It's like insurance. Right. <laughs> when everything else goes wrong. You can follow when that. I'm feeling down on education, on rituals and everything else. It's the one stool. Yeah. You know, it's the one uh, thing that keeps us going is that we're part of this transcendent, unbelievable story. Right. So there is a nasevenishma mm. wisdom uh, to the notion of having repeated rituals in our lives. Right, that uh, that I I I think can be. I was going to say more important, maybe not more important, but but critical component of our of our identities. So for us, for example, Shabbat is 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 sacrosanct. We're not observant. I don't keep kosher. There there are a lot of you things. You do Friday that I do. night. We do, mm -hmm. uh, and like the greatest gift. Yeah, to humanity. Friday yes. night. Do your kids disconnect? 
in the iPhone? Everything. That's yeah. that's so now and and it's not our only ritual, but 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 the fact that we have that to lean on, it activates a different part of of our conscience, I think. Yes. And and, and it is critical. And our specific rituals you know, I think my initial reaction when I saw that was, hey, you know, every club has its secret handshake. What does it matter? You know, this, these particular rituals. No, I think these particular rituals do matter. They yeah. really, they really yeah. do, and the repetition uh, yeah. matters to give us a, a sense of uh, of consistency. Uh, before we go, Tal, I'd like you to give me. Um, are there authors? Are there writers? Are there speakers today that are doing justice to this thing that you're looking for? Uh, so I know you got a major plug from Chief Rabbi Sachs. Yeah. So uh, I, so I, I think, and, and you and I have talked about this earlier, I think it's important. We, we, the time is ripe for this conversation, uh, which is exciting to me. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see that. I mean, as, as I kind of meet more and more people on this tour, I see that I'm not the only one asking these questions. And I was, I think maybe my biggest concern with people, you know, would sort of dismiss this and say, this is not a big deal. We don't care enough to, to you know, people This is do the care. deal. Yeah. So, you know, that, that, that's been exciting. I have, uh, you know, I, I, I've met and become uh, uh, an admirer of a lot of Jewish thinkers since the publication of the book, th through the publication, and realized that this message is not really new. Uh, and, and most recently, I read uh, Arnie Eisen's Taking Hold of Torah. Mm -hmm. uh, published in 1996. He kind of hits all these points to, to, to an embarrassingly precise uh, uh, degree. I wish I had read it uh, read it earlier. So this is out there. I mean, there are people who I, I think have recognized this need. I, I, I'm just not sure we as a people were, uh, were ready for this conversation. And I think we are today. I can, I can feel it in Israel as well, which is, which is also exciting to me. And are you getting feedback from the Jewish establishment, from major organizations that are going to try to take this into on a concrete level moving forward with some programming? Yeah. So um, I, I can't say who specifically at this point, but uh, uh, from actual government bodies to some of the, the, the bigger nonprofits in the Jewish world who are, as you, as you know, uh, increasingly concerned with this uh, idea of what exactly is Jewish identity. Uh, have embraced it, and I, I can't say that's is exactly along the lines of the prescription I put out in the book, but we're Jews, we're going to argue that's fine, that's actually right. good. But the notion that we have to come up with some constitutional document, uh, and we need a process for forming it, that defines us. Mm -hmm. th th this is something that I think a lot of people uh, are accepting today, and, and to me that, that is the key premise of the book, is we need to define ourselves now. It is a moment where, where we're called upon to muster the agency and the responsibility to, to, to actually do that. And I'm excited that there are people, thinking people around the table, uh, who, who are part of that. And process. there are three circles, because there's the circle of the, we have to agree here in America on this constitutional document, and the Jews in Israel have to agree among themselves yeah. on that, and they have their own challenges. And then between the two of us, the Jews of America and Jews of Israel, we need to somehow find a cohesive Thing that we can agree on, right? So it's 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 really complicated because we all have our challenges right now. A big issue in the Jewish world is the relationship between the Jews of Israel and the Jews of America. There was a you know famous piece a few weeks ago by Weissman in the yeah, New York that. Times that was so alarmist, and it made it look like you know we're ready to get a get. Right. We're like in divorce proceedings, right. which I think was way overblown. Um, but that's a big issue. How do you deal with this? marital issue between us 
Well, so so first of all, I, so I read that article. Um, I have to say, I, I I'm a Zionist, which which means that agency matters to me. I'm I'm not not that interested in predicting stuff, mm. right? Uh, um, uh, let, let's make it happen. What do we want the relationship between the nation state of the Jews and the Jews to be? What do we want it to be? Sitting here and wringing our hands about what it is is, okay, that, that's maybe part of the challenge. It's fine. Uh, but now, let, let, now let's do something about it. And what's exciting to me today is we are facing the same question. Because just, just like we have to define Judaism in the United States, we have to do the same thing in Israel, and let's do it together. Nice. Because I don't think that the ambition, the ambition that I had for Israel, which is just a democracy for Jewish people, that was the, uh, the a, a refuge for Jewish people that was structured as a democracy, I don't think that's adequate anymore, right? We, we don't have Jewish people in distress, a small Iranian Jewish community. Other than that, every Jew in the world lives where he or she wants to live, right? Even if you're in France, you can leave. You, know, you, don't, you, don't, have to, uh, you, you don't have to stay there. So we actually need to decide what does Jewish statehood mean. Mm. And to me, if we, if we can't divorce that question from what is Judaism, it's a part of the same conversation. Israel has to be a means, not an end. And that's something that I think is dawning on many Israelis today uh, as well. And the book, is kind of, the book is out in Hebrew as well. Um, you know, I, I, it gets some sharp reactions. It gets sharp reactions on both sides, but the people tend to react to different things on either side. But what I think people can agree on is it is time to sit down and, and define it. You know, it's, it's interesting because uh, when I would talk about conversation in the Jewish world, I would always say, you know, we need to ignite a conversation, we need to elevate the conversation. Recently, I've been using a different word. We need to continue the conversation. Mm. And this is what I'm sensing from you and your book is this idea, let's continue the conversation. Yeah. This is not a new conversation. Agreed. Let's, let's continue it and let's open up a really big tent and get as many Jews as possible to come in and be part of it. And I just, uh, I wish that, you're, uh, that it succeeds. I really yeah. do. Because this is an ongoing kind of process. And I think even you writing the book is part of continuing the conversation. I, I agree. Yeah, so, I agree. Uh, you know what? We, let, let's plan to talk to each other in about a year or two. Fantastic. And we can follow up on how we're doing. I'd love it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tal. Thank you, David. And for anybody who would like to know more about the book, uh, they have a great Facebook page, God is in the Crowd. Uh, the book is on Amazon, and I highly recommend it. Thanks again, Tal. Thank you, David. This episode is sponsored by Yeshiva University's Wurzweiler School of Social Work. Please visit them at wurz.yu.ed.